This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Best is about the insight and the context that we get from our guests. It's a great way to catch up on some of the stories you might have missed on the Bloomberg. Stories you're not going to find in any other news organization. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini on this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. America cannot cannot withstand another four years of, of a Biden presidency. CEO of Arm Holdings. If whatever's being generated can be developed in such a way that there is no fail-safe mechanism, that it can be overridden by a human, that's what worries me. BMW revs up plans for electric vehicles. Additional facilities are being put up. And singer Patti LaBelle on selling her line of food products. We've got a few no's, but then the yeses outweigh the no's. Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg's Best Stories of the Week, powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. And Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin's name, well, it's been floated all over the place as a potential future Republican presidential candidate. Yeah, it sure has, Denise. At the same time, he's also facing scrutiny because his party lost control of the Virginia State House last month. That's quite a challenge, potentially, for his leadership. And what's the governor saying about all this, Ed? And what tone is he striking? That is being closely watched as well amid all the attention about being a possible presidential candidate. Yep. So here is Youngkin with Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern. So we've had divided government in Virginia the last two years. Uh, it's a little bit more divided now than it was. Uh, and I look back on uh, the elections in November and they were incredibly tight. We knew it going in. Uh, there had been redistricting and the redistricting had worked a little bit against us. And these races were divided by hundreds and five hundreds votes. And and so we go in one seat down uh, in our House. We picked up a seat in our Senate, but we're still one seat down in our Senate. Uh, and it's going to be the very same kind of work that we did over the last two years, which is how do we bring people together around common sense solutions to pressing issues? And, and we know the most pressing issues today are ones of economic conf- confidence um, and really the challenges of rising cost of living. Listen, it's just clear over the course of uh, now the last three years of the Biden economy, we have seen inflation really run away from a lot of folks. And 60% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And I hear it. Um, I travel around a lot in Virginia. It's one of my big commitments is to get out of Richmond. And what I constantly hear are concerns about the cost of living uh, and is my job safe. Um, and so we are moving into this legislative cycle try, trying to advance, and I believe we will, the exact same formulas that we brought when we first came in, which is how do we take Virginia, which, come, which was coming out of the pandemic when, when uh, I was elected in 2021 and took office in 2022, bottom third in the nation in job growth, um, with real concerns with population uh, uh, out-migration, where for nine straight years, more people had moved away to the other 49 states than to Virginia. And how do we turn that so that Virginia can be one of the winning states as opposed to one of the losing states? And there's a clear reality that there are states around the nation that are winning and there are states that are losing. And the states that are winning have very clear, similar policies of lower taxes and streamlined regulations for pro-business environments, uh, right to work. Uh, and a real recognition that we have to create opportunity so that Virginians in this case can fully participate. Those are the things that we're going to progress to continue to work to bring down the cost of living with 
I think, some really um, uh, innovative ways to bring taxes down. I think we're going to work hard to make sure that we bring up workforce participation even further. We, we've just hit a 12-year high in workforce participation. But we know we need more Virginians working. And so that's why last week we rolled out, I think, a very important initiative on child care uh, in order to provide working families confidence uh, that they can have safe and reliable child care for their kids. Uh, when, we, when we speak to women and we see survey after survey, the, the, one of the top issues in whether they've come back to work or not coming out of the pandemic is reliable child care. And so I'm very excited about our Building Blocks for Virginia program, um, which is really going to work to increase the opportunity for Virginians to find child care alternatives. All of this translates into just a recognition that we're competing every day. We're competing for jobs. We're competing for people. And we're competing for opportunity. And uh, the last two years, I think we've demonstrated we compete well. We have 230,000 more people working today than when we started. We started bottom third of job growth. And over the last 22 months, we've moved to number three in the nation in job growth. We can do this. We just have to continue to do the things that we've been doing. You also have a very low unemployment rate in Virginia. We do. 2.8%. Last week's jobs report was 3.7% nationally. So we have a very good job market in the United States. Yet you met with business leaders recently, and you came out of that meeting saying they see a mild recession ahead. How can we have a mild recession with this kind of labor market? Well, first of all, it's because we don't have one economy in the United States. Um, We really have two. Uh, We have economy of winners and an economy, unfortunately, of losers. And... Like all businesses, and when I, when I was in the business world for 30 years, if you had multiple outlets for a retailer, um, you would have some of your outlets that were doing really well and some of them weren't, weren't, that weren't doing very well, and yet the aggregate of that represents your performance. Well, the United States is the exact same, and we have many states that are doing very well and other states that are doing poorly. And the reality, of course, is that, as I said earlier, it is the policies that are driving this. Let me just give you an example. Um, Over the last four years, since before the pandemic, there's been about two and a half million jobs created in America uh, up up through October. Um, Ten states, ten states account for three million of those two and a half million jobs. And ten other states have lost a million jobs during that time period. And by the way, the winning states are the bigger states like Florida and and Texas. Virginia has added, as I said, 230,000 jobs since I came in. And the states that have been losing jobs truly are the ones that we hear about all the time. California, Illinois, New York. I mean, they've had negative job growth since before the pandemic. Um, This is just a stark reality of the tale of two cities of the American economy. And so there are parts of our American economy that are already in recession. Um, the, develop, the, the real estate development side of things um, is already in recession. We've seen it pull back materially. And so these fears of recession, I think, um, are well-grounded. And I believe that there's real risk next year in a recession. We have a strong job market um, across uh, many of these uh, states really led by Republicans. The top 10 states in unemployment are led by Republicans. Um, and by the way, the bottom 10 states, nine out of the 10 of them are led by Democrats. We see three other governors on stage potentially be the nominee for your party, Christie, DeSantis, and Haley. Yet the potential man is someone who's talking about being a dictator for the day, um, lost in 2020, and will be older than Joe Biden was on his inauguration day. Do you think it's time for someone new for next year? 
So Americans will decide this. This is what everyone and, also is waiting for me to no, ask. You, so. Americans, <laughs> Americans will decide this. Um, and I have said I'm, um, I want Virginians to decide who our nominee is. Uh, I firmly believe that America cannot, cannot withstand another four years of, of a Biden presidency. And what we see today are the real ramifications of bad leadership. So if your goal is to not have a President Biden, have you had a change of a heart in potentially endorsing someone that could beat Biden in a general? Well, first of all, I, I, I have been very clear. I will not endorse prior to, prior to the Virginia, prior to the, uh, Virginia primary. I'm going to let Virginians choose. And, and second of all, uh, I firmly believe that Americans, Republicans, independents, and a load of Democrats understand that we can't, as a nation, afford another four years of Joe Biden. Just look at what's happening. I mean, even compare it to, even compare it to the Trump presidency. Um, we have got international chaos, truly. War in the Middle East, war in Ukraine, uh, pending and, and saber-rattling and military aggression out of China like we didn't see. We, we see chaos at the border, true chaos at the border, and no one can deny this. It is, it is chaos in a humanitarian basis. It's chaos from a drug flow standpoint. It's chaos from a national security standpoint. We, we're watching our economy, and we're debating whether we're going to have a recession or not, because we now have interest rates we've never seen before because they've had to be raised in order to combat the inflation that he unleashed when everybody knew when you have unfettered spending to the degree that he did, we were going to unleash inflation. He didn't seem to recognize that. So we've got this massive reality and that Americans see. And I do believe that at the end of the day that the Republican candidate will be Joe Biden. And I think Americans, Americans will, will vote that way because they know that the weakness that he projects, the weakness that he projects around the world and at home has put America's future at risk. And we can't have this again. I mean, you cannot project that kind of weakness internationally. And, and, the, and the aggression that you see from our adversaries, from Iran, from Russia, from China, from North Korea, you, 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 this is an absolute result of a weak president, and we can't have that again. Will you serve out your full term as governor? Yeah, I fully plan on serving out my full wow. year. I do. And Would you go into an administration if you were tapped as VP or cabinet? Well, I, again, I plan on serving out the next two years as governor. And you've been listening to Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin with Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern. And coming up... A look inside the semiconductor business and the development of artificial intelligence with the CEO of Arm Holding. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Semiconductor company Arm Holdings in the spotlight here. Yeah, that's right, especially because companies are rushing to use artificial intelligence in their businesses. And Bloomberg's Tom McKenzie caught up with Arm CEO Renee Haas at Arm's global headquarters in Cambridge, UK. And Haas told Tom Arm will be central to the development of artificial intelligence. Check this out. We've been public now uh, for few months. Yeah. So I would say I feel like the eyes are upon me a little bit more mm -hmm. uh, than they were prior. But on the other hand, I, I try to think about it in terms of um, the future of ARM is really not measured in what we are today. It's what we're going to be in, in a few years. And how do you balance the demands 
of investors in the company now, those new investors and the legacy investors. And of course, Masayoshi's son, SoftBank being, being the big force, gravitational force. How do you, how do you balance those, those demands? So Arm is really a company that is hard to look at quarter to quarter because the, the technology we're working on today is really technology that's going to end up in products three years from now, four years from now. So while the financial results are important, mm. They're really the results of strategies we put in place a number of years ago, which were quite successful. So what we try to do is just make sure that the investors understand that while the, the near-term results are very important, it's really also important to really think about the long-term and where we're going directionally. Look, Arm was set up in the 1990s. You've been the building blocks of our digital globe, digital world, digital economy since then. And now we're at this point where we're focused on generative AI, and that is reshaping this digital ecosystem that we that we now live in or that we will be living on. What role do you see ARM playing in that transformed digital space in the years ahead? Yeah, so ARM in the 30 plus years has just been foundational to computing in a way that no other computer architecture before it, and I dare say after it, uh, has been. 70% uh, of the world's population touches ARM today in some way. Uh, we were well known for uh, smartphones. Uh, and before that, non-smartphones, feature phones, if you mm -hmm. will. The arm of today is, is not only much more diversified around, as I mentioned before, data centers, automotive, IoT, but now as AI and AI workloads are finding their way into every single application, whether it's your thermostat or your data center, arm will be there. So I think for us in the upcoming years and decades, arm will be foundational to everything going on with AI. So you can assure investors that you will remain, you're essential right now to this digital world that we live in. You will be essential in that generative AI reshaped world in the years ahead. You will continue to play that essential role. You can't role. run AI without ARM. Mm. It's foundational. Mm. And AI is gonna find its way into every single electronics device that we use. Again, whether it's the smallest device in your home or the largest data center that sits out in the, uh, out in the wild. Every AI executive that I speak to, whether it's DeepMind or Cohere or Inflection or others, say the scramble for compute is front and center, along with the fight for talent. How do you see that fight for compute going forward? I do think for the next number of years, we are going to see a increasing demand for more and more compute. Now, I think it's also going to drive is a high degree of need for power efficiency, because these data centers require hundreds of watts, megawatts, up to the gigawatts of type of energy. We don't produce that much energy uh, as, as a planet. Uh, we are having limitations relative to fossil fuels, limitations to sustainable. So a rush to get to power efficiency around these compute models is going to be very, very significant. That's great for ARM because mm -hmm. the DNA of our company is around power efficiency. I want to go back to 2017. You diversified the business. You broke out these four different divisions, mm -hmm. IoT, cloud, infrastructure, autonomous vehicles. Why did you see that as necessary? Previous to 2017, we would design a mobile processor and then really attempt to squeeze it or peanut butter it, if you will, into the server space or into the automotive space or into different areas of IoT. It just wasn't sufficient. And we had a lot of questions early on. Well, why isn't, what's taking ARM so long to be successful in the servers? Uh, many different reasons contributed to that. But one of them was, candidly, we just didn't have the right products. And we were able to create Neoverse. We were able to add custom extensions, things like confidential compute that are necessary for building high-grade data centers. We could put those in the products. And now with Neoverse, we have a world-class competitive entry 
that you're seeing the benefits of it, whether it's the Microsoft Cobalt or, or AWS. We had to do that in 2017 because mm. uh, it was clear that these other markets were demanding it and the software ecosystem needed to be able to support it. What, what kind of revenue mix would you need to see to kind of declare a success in that diversification push? I'm going to declare some modicum of success now. Uh, we were over 60% revenue in smartphones, maybe even higher. Mm -hmm. Uh, prior to this change, uh, smartphones now, while a very large market for us, are about 40% uh, and declining. And our largest growth in terms of revenue are coming from these new markets, as I mentioned, cloud and, uh, and automotive. Which of those is most exciting to you, cloud, automotive? Which has the greatest prospect in terms of driving revenues into the business? I do think the cloud data center is even potentially uh, more exciting from the perspective of when you layer in the AI component, uh, we talked about all the growth that ARM has seen uh, in the cloud, but now as we're seeing the, the shift towards AI, a product like Grace Hopper, again, NVIDIA taking their GPU and our CPU and creating the world's best uh, super chip for AI, that wasn't you know, on the roadmap in 2017 when we started because we weren't thinking about the AI market. So I think for us, cloud could be a, a terrific opportunity. And what is the market share in cloud that you would be targeting in the years ahead? Do you have a number in mind, Rene? You know, we're in double digits now, yeah. and I always like to say when, when you get to double digits in, in our space, you're now, you're, you're in the party. Mm -hmm. uh, can we get to uh, over 50% over time? Uh, I think we can. I want to talk a little bit about ARM's place in the UK. ARM is conceived, of course, here in Cambridge in the UK. It's now obviously majority owned by a Japanese company, SoftBank listed in the US. What role do you see the UK playing for ARM in the years ahead? Uh, the UK is our home. Uh, it's our headquarters, it's where we were born, and we're always going to be here. So the UK is incredibly central to the future of ARM in so many ways. Probably our, our biggest bottleneck for growth is just getting talent in. Uh, but we are very, very committed to, to the UK. Uh, and again, the UK is going to be so critical for our future. And, and the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, they want to create, they want to turn the UK into the next Silicon Valley. Is that realistic, Rene? Really? <laughs> There's only one Silicon Valley, right? It's a, it's a unique area in terms of its ecosystem, the universities, and how the whole, uh, how the whole section works. Does that mean that can't be uh, imitated or uh, replicated on some level in other parts of the world? No, not at all. And I think the government here has been doing a fantastic job uh, around that. And Cambridge itself is a very, very rich community of uh, small companies incubators, the universities. What would you say to any incoming government, whether it's the Conservative government or a Labour Party government, that you would want to see happen in those first 100 days? We're very committed to the UK. Uh, this is our home. We were born here. We intend to stay here. Uh, please make it very easy for us to attract world-class talent and uh, attract engineers to come work for ARM. And we've seen the debate around risks, risks around generative AI blow in blow out into the open with, with what's happened with OpenAI and, and Sam Altman. Where do you land on this? I just wonder, is there an element of this story that keeps you up at night, that concerns you? What are you most worried about within the evolution of generative AI? Uh, that, the, that we lose control of the machines. I think to some extent, and the hows are still very much being debated, obviously, of having the fail-safe mechanisms in place that humans can override the systems. That is probably the single largest thing that I, I think and worry about, is that if the machines can be, or the algorithms, or whatever's being generated can be developed in such a way that there is no fail-safe mechanism 
that it can be overridden by a human, uh, that's what worries me. That was Renee Haas, CEO of Arm Holdings, with Bloomberg's Tom McKenzie at Arm's global headquarters in the UK. And coming up, a look under the hood at BMW. That's right. We'll hear from the CEO of the automaker's North American division in a sit-down with Bloomberg's Matt Miller. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. Broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130 to Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991 to Boston. Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco. Bloomberg 960 to the country. Sirius XM 121 and around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And a tough week for the electric vehicle industry. A tough week, Denise? You mean tough past couple of years, right? Yeah, that's fair, Ed. We've had those huge losses for startups like Rivian and Lucid. Their shares have tanked. And the major automakers have also really struggled on EV tech and sales. Now, of course, we have a lot of problems with self-driving cars, as well as with GM's cruise unit cutting hundreds of jobs after one of its vehicles struck and dragged a pedestrian in October. Yeah, and if we're going to pile on it here with problems in the auto industry, we should also mention Tesla and its recall of more than 2 million vehicles because the autopilot system, while safety regulators say it doesn't go far enough to guard against misuse. At the same time, there's no question that automakers are still eyeing electric self-driving vehicles as the future. And you can put BMW in that lane. BMW North America looking to the road ahead with electric vehicles. At the same time, it maybe also looks in the rearview mirror for possible labor challenges. And Denise Bloomberg's Matt Miller caught up with Sebastian Mackinson, CEO of BMW North America, to ask him all about it. Let's listen in. BMW was really a pioneer um, in the electric space with the i3 and the i8 years ago. And now you've just released the i5. I was lucky enough to spend some time in the i7. So you've got a huge palette um, of of offerings. How's the demand look to you? First of all, thanks for having me, Matt. Um, The demand is looking very strong. Um, This is a process, I would say, where we are in, and that's not a process from 22 to 23 or from 23 to 24. This is a longer-term transition, and uh, we are very happy with the place we are. We now have four different vehicles uh, which we offer in the marketplace, i4, i5, ix, and i7, so all the main segments, and uh, we see growth in those segments, and uh, we think we have a strong product offer which customers appreciate. One of the interesting things I saw is that you had a jump in sales for sedans and a drop in sales for SUVs. And for most car makers, I would think that's very strange, but your electric offering is, for the most part, with, with the accepting the iX, right? That's true. Is in the sedan space. Is that part of the reason that you're selling more um, you know, cars than trucks? That is part of which is uh, fueling this, uh, this trend. Also, our trucks are very uh, sought after from global markets, so we always have to be a bit in a battle with other markets uh, where the vehicles go. The i4 has been very strong this year for the full year available, and that definitely also builds on the on the demand on the sedan side. But the SUV segment, or in our case, sports activity vehicles, SAV, stays uh, very strong this year as well, X3, X5, and X7 uh, mainly. And you produced all of those, mainly all of those here in Spartanburg. Um, is there any plan to move some of that production back to Germany. I saw recently that Mercedes, for example, is moving production of the EQS um, back 
back to Germany, and I thought maybe you could do the same with the X7 and backfill it with X5 demand. There's no plan uh, to do that. Spartanburg is uh, our main stake here. It's over half of our uh, business for the U.S. market, which we produce in, in South Carolina, and uh, we will rather invest further for future generations of those vehicles. So no plan to to relocate those uh, those production cars. Yeah, you, I mean, a lot of people don't know, but you are the biggest exporter, automotive exporter in the country. Nobody exports more uh, auto product than BMW. You're going to be building a lot more electric vehicles here. At least um, that's what you've said previously. Do you still plan to make six electric, fully electric vehicles in the U.S. by the end of the decade? Absolutely. Um, we have uh, done this investment decision uh, about a year ago when we announced it in, in November of 2022 in, uh, in Spartanburg. And uh, that is the plan. It's a well-analyzed and thought-out plan. And this is where we want to uh, stick to and we will stick to. And suddenly, uh, currently, sorry, um, the working is happening on the grounds uh, where additional facilities are being put up. And um, we will ob obviously use them. Now, there's one um, interesting uh, additional point to this. We have a very flexible production structure. So we built electric vehicles and non-electric uh, variants of the same vehicle on the same line. So this is where we uh, think with the approach to open, open technologies uh, have a good flexibility in the system. I'm just trying to gauge your commitment to electric vehicles since there's been so much talk about, uh, you know, maybe demand um, isn't quite as strong as people had expected. A lot of automakers are pulling back on their investment uh, plans. What does it look like at BMW? I think we have to be careful how we interpret that information. One thing is, is there a growing market for electric vehicles? 100%, yes. Is the growth on the exact same level as maybe some experts have estimated a year ago or six months ago? Maybe not. So that is for me, I think, the, the important part. What is the gradient of that growth? Will there be growth for better electric vehicles? Absolutely. So you have currently like 12% of uh, your total sales are all electric. And if you add in plug-in hybrids, you're getting, uh, I towards think, 20, yeah. towards 20%. Do you expect that to continue to rise into 24, 25? Yes. Uh, we plan on a, on a higher share of battery electric vehicle sales in 2024. Um, I cannot talk today about uh, those exact numbers, but uh, um, definitely we see a higher share in 2024, and we think we will see an even higher share again in uh, 2025 as well. What about the um, production facilities here? I mean, BMW is one of the first international, you know, uh, um, luxury car makers to come. I think it was the early 90s that you first put up your plant in Spartanburg. But it's not union. And now that we've seen this drama unfold, the UAW getting their contracts with the big three American automakers, are they coming to your shop? Have they called you up, the UAW? Uh, so first of all, they would probably not call me up because I have a very esteemed colleague down in Spartanburg who is uh, running BMW manufacturing down there. So uh, they will take care of this topic. But from my point of view, we have a huge success story down there. As you just mentioned, it started in 94, 95. And, um, you know, you need good employees, you need good talent to grow the business and to build excellent ultimate driving machines. And I think we treat our employees the right way. So, but you don't expect um, the union to make approaches or you don't expect those to be successful? I cannot judge what the union will or will not do and in which way, but uh, as I said, I think we have a great relationship with all our employees and uh, we are planning for success in the future as well. 
All right, I just want to ask also about something that's a little bit quirky, but a lot of car lovers will understand the importance. You've recently put uh, manual transmission in the Z4. That's right. Which, you know, a lot of people are worried that manuals, well, car aficionados are worried that the manuals will die, but the take rate's been fairly high for that car's kind of twin, the Toyota Supra. Um, how do you expect the manual version to sell? From the early chatter you hear in the market, I think there will be a lot of aficionados who who want to go with the manual transmission. It is still how a lot of us, at least my generation, have actually learned uh, uh, to drive a car. And um, it definitely has this additional feeling of really be in control of your car. At the same time, when you drive long distances or when you drive in a, in a inner city traffic, you also get to um, appreciate all the advantages of an, of an automatic trans transmission. But the first feedback on that vehicle is very positive. I'm a huge fan of obviously the stick shift, um, but I also love sometimes the car to take over for me. Uh, I think a 5 Series was the first time I was ever in a car that you know I could take my hands off the wheel um, and it stayed on the Autobahn. I was in Germany at the time. Um, how long do you think it's going to be until we get to self-driving cars? I mean fully automated self-driving cars. I would like to focus on what we offer today, because we don't offer that only on the Autobahn in Germany. We offer that on the highway of the United States. Uh, factually, I drove home in my uh, i7, and I absolutely enjoy that function, because we call it ice on the road, hands off the wheel. You stay in charge. It's not fully automated driving. You have to be able to take over in any moment, but it's unbelievable how much more relaxing a driving is if the car does certain things for, for you. And um, this technology will advance further and um, we will see over the years how it really develops. But it's uh, definitely a great feature um, already today in the market. All right, my colleague, by the way, Hannah Elliott, has a great review of the i7 on the Bloomberg terminals. It's an absolute battleship. All right, Matt, thank you. We'll check that review out. And that was Bloomberg's Matt Miller with Sebastian Mackinson, CEO of BMW North America. And coming up... R&B singer and actress Patti LaBelle on her secret sauce for developing a successful line of food products. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Patty LaBelle. Selling a lot more than marmalade these days. She sure is with her food company, The Good Life. Selling food, beverages, condiments, and even housewares. And Ed Forbes says the products, now even sold in Walmart and other places, raked in $20 million in revenue last year, and Patti LaBelle and her family own the company. Uh, Bloomberg's Romain Bostic had a chance to ask LaBelle about how it all happened, and here's what the R&B legend had to say. From my mother and father recipes, and um, me and my partners, Charles and my son Zori and Alex, they did all the legwork and went into places, you know, promoting my food. And they got a lot of yeses. Sometimes you get all no's. We got a few no's, but then the yeses outweigh the no's. Yeah. Were you surprised by the reception to it? Not just in terms of the, the stores that picked it up, but really the actual customers who ended up buying it. I was very surprised. You know, because I've always cooked, and that's why 
my partners, they all ate my food back in the day and said, this should be in the markets. This should be somewhere so people can purchase it so they can get the goodness that they've been getting all their lives. So when it did as well as it did, I was shocked. I was shocked. But um, I shouldn't have been because I knew it was great food. And I knew from my heart I don't put out anything that's less perfect. So I was surprised, but happy, yeah. happily surprised, yes. You mentioned how you wanted to make sure that it was also affordable. Talk about that decision process. I mean, I would, given, mm-hmm. given your celebrity, given the quality uh, of the food, particularly the pies, which I've tasted the pies, some of the other things I've yet to taste. Do you like them? But give, I love them. Okay. <laughs> I love them. Okay. But given the quality and given your star power, I feel like you could have put any price tag on that and probably still sold out. I wouldn't have felt good in the heart. Uh-huh. I would have been brokenhearted to sell something that I tripled the sales because I'm Patti LaBelle. That's, that's not good karma. You know? So at the prices that they were and when they started doing so well, I was happy that people who can't really afford some things in life can get the good life from my products because they're reasonable. How long did it take before it really started to take off? We were blessed instantly, yeah. right wow. away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do with that business? Oh, we're growing every day. We have new products coming out next year, pancakes, waffles, the powder for the pancakes, syrup, um, a lot of breakfast items. Um, and every, every day we come up with new ideas as to what we want to put out in the public for somebody to have, yes. You are still a musician. You're still a touring musician. I'm told you just got off tour. I never stopped touring. And the thing that makes me so happy is that in the venues, they're like sold out with no record in 20 years. So people are still coming to see the soul has been. <laughs> Who does yeah. not have a record out, you yeah. know? So I'm, I'm working on that this year and next year it'll be out. Yeah. But I'm just happy touring. I mean, I love to tour. Yeah, and you, I mean, you, you jokingly use the word has-been, but as I'm sure you know, you're anything but that. I am not a has-been. And has you been. have the, the fan base from back in the day, but you also have a new generation of folks, even though you haven't put out an album in 20 years, right. that have gravitated to your music, whether however uh-huh. they've discovered it through streaming or whatever here. I mean, how does that make you feel when you see a 20-year-old or even a 25-year-old say, oh my God, this is... I question yeah. them. I'll say, do yeah. you like me because your mother liked me? Or do you like me because you heard me and you said, I like her because mm-hmm. I like her now? Because I meet a lot of young folks. My mother is crazy about you. She's this and that. I'm saying this baby don't have a clue who I am or anything about me. Mm-hmm. They're speaking for their mother. Mm-hmm. So when I see them at my show now, I feel wonderful. It's a blessing. Mm-hmm. And what do you think of just about the changes, though, in the music industry? I mean, the way artists make money has changed a lot from, you know, the 60s, oh, 70s, 80s. The to way they're now. doing it now, social media. Mm-hmm. See, I didn't have that when I was you're with record labels. Mm-hmm. These kids have their own music, their own thoughts. They put it out themselves and they make money. Mm-hmm. So it's a great thing about social media. You know, the way it's given people a chance to sell their product, to sell them. So it, it, that's a great thing. And that was R&B singer and actor Patti LaBelle with Bloomberg's Romaine Bostic. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And this is Bloomberg. Now stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. 